Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Filipino girl, and they had a baby, and they called her Jalapeno. <laughs> All right, that was done. With that note, uh, Ephesians 5. Uh, so we're, like I said, we're going to start trying to start closer to 7 and be done at 8.30. Um, also, uh, we're going to start, you know, having some more stuff going on kind of during the, at least an activity once a month, things like that outside of the church. So we got some stuff to look forward to, be praying that the Lord will lead us to some fun stuff to do. So, um, but Ephesians 5, if you have your Bible, open up to that. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage and then uh, dive into it. Starting in verse 21. Paul writes, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of the body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So, Father, um, help me. I need your help with this, Lord. And, um, and I just pray you would bless your word. I know that you will. It won't return to you void, Lord. So, Speak to us in a way that's profitable, that'll uh, help us. Uh, I know some people here are married. Some of us aren't, Lord, but I trust your word is going to do what you want it to do today, Lord. So uh, may I decrease and you increase, and um, will you just speak to us? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Pastor Chuck once said this. He said that a good marriage was as close as you could get to heaven on earth. But he also said, conversely, a bad marriage is as close as you could get to hell on earth. The truth is, is that the marital relationship is probably the most important relationship in one's life. This one relationship will affect us and the affairs of our life more than any other. And for this reason, the Bible has a ton of instruction regarding marriage. It has a lot of passages like we're looking at tonight. It has stories that give us uh, obvious examples of what not to do in marriage, things like that. And tonight we're not going to exhaustively cover it. It would take months to do a series to cover everything that the Bible has to say about marriage. But we're going to focus on 
really the Holy Spirit's role in the family and marriage and the exhortations that Paul has for husbands and wives. So tonight we're going to begin looking at what a spirit-filled home looks like. Paul's going to take the exhortation that he gave us in verse 18 to stop being drunk with wine, that that's excess or dissipation, but to be filled with the spirit. And he's going to start showing what spirit-filled relationships in the home look like. Uh, Relationship between husband and wife. Relationship between uh, parents and children. Uh, relationship between slaves and masters. We need to remember that in the first century, the time that Paul was writing this, uh, slavery was a lot different than the chattel slavery that we think of. The slaves were more like indentured servants. And the Bible said a whole lot in the Old Testament about protecting the slaves, especially Hebrew slaves. They would actually be brought into the home and would be treated like family. So it has uh, uh, these passages and Uh, The next few weeks are going to have a lot to do with our home life. So I've entitled this series, The Spirit-Filled Home. And this is going to be the first part of it. Uh, Now, I want to preface all this by telling you guys, uh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable teaching on this. I'm not married. I've never been married. I obviously have no experience whatsoever with marriage or leading a family. In fact, I tried really hard to get somebody to come and teach this passage for me. I I, I really was praying that God would give me someone, and God just kept saying, no, you are going to do it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, Lord. And so here I am. And I know some of you guys are probably thinking, how is this going to apply to me? I'm not married. I don't have anybody in prospects in the future of being married. Why do I need to sit here and pay attention? Well, if God's going to make me teach it, he's going to make you listen to it, right? Plus, I believe it's a lot more relevant for you than you think. I I, I really do. I'm guessing that most of you want to be married someday, that marriage is a desire that you have. So my suggestion would be to start trying to be the the type of future husband or or wife that you want to be. Uh, try trying to be the person that you want to be when you are married so that you could be the type of husband or wife that Paul is saying here. Maybe, just maybe, God does have somebody that he wants to bring into your life and bless you with and, and enter that covenant with. He's just waiting for you to get ready so you don't screw it up before it actually happens, right? So maybe we need to start applying these things and we'll start to see God moving. Another reason I think this passage is relevant because it's going to teach us how to pray for the marriages around us. You know, the, the home structure, the, the family, is the strength of the nation or the community. Our, our, our communities are only as good as our families are strong. And if we want to be salt and light to our community, we want to see our communities thrive, we need to see marriages thriving, especially within the church. And so we should be praying for that. We should be interceding for that. Pastor Bob just gave a wonderful sermon on Sunday about prayer and our need to pray for other people. Start praying for the marriages around you. Start praying for your neighbor's marriages. Start praying for your parents' marriage. Start praying for the marriages in the church. And who knows what God will do. Uh, Plus, I think this applies in another way. I, I think this all applies to us kind of in a direct way. I think that each of the commands are really go to all Christians. 
in this sense, right? Every Christian is commanded to submit to each other, right? That was verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, right? So, so we all have to submit to each other. It's not just the wives. And every Christian's called to, to love each other, right? That's the, the, the great commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor, right? So, so we are all called to do the things that both the husband and wives are called to do in this passage. So there's a very direct application for us as well. Uh, God has created three institutions. The first institution he created was marriage in the Garden of Eve, the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. Then he created the institution of government. And then he created the institution of the church. And now these three institutions are, or authorities are there. Uh, they've been, since the day of their inception, under direct attack by Satan. He's been trying to undermine them and trying to make them weak and, and not useful in the way that God designed them to be. And this is especially true concerning marriage and the family. I don't think any of us would look around and say that Satan is not attacking the home. He's not attacking the family today. You know, you don't have to go very far in the Bible to find this, right? The fall happens in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, the first murder happens, and it's between one brother and another. It's, it's in the family. It's in the home. A few generations later, Limech is a, a polygamist. It's, it's messing up the family. Satan's in the family. In Genesis 9, remember, Noah comes off the ark, and he gets drunk, and Ham comes and uncovers his nakedness, whatever that means, and and he gets cursed for it. Uh, when Sarah couldn't conceive a, a child, remember what her, you know, wise idea is? Probably Satan-inspired idea was? He'd just go into my handmaiden and have a, have a child through her. In Genesis 19, things get so bad that God has to destroy an entire city. And sodomy uh, becomes synonymous with a homosexual. In Genesis 34, we read of Shechem's fornication with Dina, one of Jacob's daughters. And because of this act being forceful, it was also a rape. A few chapters later, we read of another double sexual sin involving Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. After she was widowed because she had no sons, she dressed up as a temple prostitute, which included wearing a veil and enticed Judah as he passed down the road, who gave her the desired son at the, at the cost of both prostitution, and incest. In the next chapter, we see the attempted seduction from Potiphar's wife. You see, all of these are happening within the family, and we see that, that from the very beginning, Satan was trying to undermine the institution of marriage that God had established. And, uh, and guess what? He didn't stop when the book of Exodus started. This has been going on all throughout the Bible, all throughout history. And if Satan's devoting so much effort uh, to the destruction of marriages and families, we can deduce that they're extremely important. We can trust that marriage and the family are ways in which God receives great glory. We can also see our need to fight like heck to maintain and promote a biblical ethic when it comes to marriage and the family. I believe that what, that's what Paul is giving us here, instructions on how to have a great God-honoring marriage. I, I think here we'd do well to define what marriage is. I think this is 
especially important in our society. Uh, one pastor defined marriage this way. I thought it was good. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive part partnership, and normally crowned with the gift of children. Verse 18, though, is kind of key to this whole passage, this, this whole area that, that we're going into with the, the family and whatnot. Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, what Paul's calling husbands and wives and children and bosses and employees to do in the coming verses is really impossible without the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's, it's never going to work. Because on our own, without the Holy Spirit, we're inherently selfish. We're, we're inherently me-centered, not wanting to die to self and to serve others and to submit to others. So if this is going to work at all, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's filling, and we need to be under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's worth mentioning again that these aren't imperatives that God, or that, yeah, God and Paul are giving us. He's not commanding us to do these things. It's not a command to, uh, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in our heart. It's not a command to give thanks for all things. It's not a command to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. It's not a command for wives to submit to their husbands. No, these are indicatives. These are just statements that he's giving. He's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be an evidence of you being spirit-filled in your life. This is going to what the outflowing of it it's going to look like. But it's not something that we are commanded. Uh, for your first fill and fill in the word submission. We are all called to submission. Look at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This word uh, to be subject is it's a military term. It means to fall in order or to, to fall in rank. And the idea is, is that we submit to Christ because Christ is in each one of us, so we'll submit to each other. We recognize that each one of us is indwelt with the Spirit of Christ and has the authority of Christ in them, and so we willingly submit to each other. We'll prefer each other ahead of ourselves. And this idea of submission is going to be key as we look at the relationships that Paul is going to mention in these coming verses. But it's especially true in, verse, in marriage. In marriage, the idea of the wife submitting to, submitting to her husband, it's really laughed at and mocked by our culture. It's deemed old-fashioned. It's deemed patriarchal, all these words that people like to use today. However, when we examine it in the biblical context, it's rather beautiful. It's none of these things that they are saying. The idea is this, is that both the husband and the wife are submitting to Christ. They're seeking Christ. They're, they're trying to follow Christ's word and Christ's leadership. And, and, and so if they're both doing that, you know, they're, they're, there's a pretty good chance they're going to naturally just be in harmony with each other. They're going to agree with each other on most things. However, in the 
rare instances where they disagree, that's where the wife submits to the husband's headship and leadership. But he is also to love her and to sacrifice for her. So there's this mutual submission. Paul's now going to give us some practical reasons for this in the coming verses. He begins with wives because they need the most help. No, <laughs> I'm just joking. That's, that's not true. If that was true, he would have given them the most instruction. There's only three verses for the wives and eight verses for the guys. So I think it's pretty obviously that we guys are knuckleheads and we're the ones who need the most help. But Paul does begin with the wives. So for letter A, fill in the word wives. God has a special calling for wives in marriage. God has a special calling for wives in marriage. In verse 22, it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the, that's the call, right? Be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. I just mentioned that this is a, a mutual submission in marriage, right? So how are wives supposed to especially submit to their husbands? Well, both the husband and the wife are submitted to the Lord. They're trying to obey him. And it makes sense that if they're both doing this, they're both living for the same purposes. And when there is a disagreement, like I said, the wife is going to fall under the headship of her husband. And then when she submits to her husband, who's being led by the Lord, she will be submitting herself not only to her husband, but also to the Lord. A few things need to be noted here. Well, number one is submission doesn't mean inferiority. I think that's what kind of rubs our culture the long, wrong way is when you're told to submit, it's kind of like, well, hey, that, why is this person better than me? But that's not necessarily true biblically. Jot down 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Now, nobody would argue that God the Father and God the Son aren't equal, right? They're both equal in essence. They're both equally God. They're both equal in authority. They're, they're equal in everything. Yet Jesus submits to the Father, right? So, so this idea of submission has nothing to do with inferiority. Twice in our text, the wife is told to submit to her own husband. Right, women, you're under no obligation to submit to or obey every man. You're not even called to obey your husbands. In the coming passages where it's talking about uh, husband or parents and kids, it's telling children to obey your parents. It's telling slaves to obey your masters. Nowhere does Paul tell wives to obey their husbands. He's saying, hey, to submit to their husbands. Husbands have no right to boss their wives around like slaves, telling them, hey, make me a sandwich or to change my channel. You know, I'm pretty sure that whoever invented the remote control was a woman. You know, they just got tired of being told to change the channel. And so they just came up with this thing called the remote control. No, but, but husbands have no right, no right to, to talk to their wives that way or treat their wives that way. They're not their boss. They're not, you know. They are their husband. 
And a husband is to love and to serve his wife. The wife is to submit to the lordship, not obey his commands. In our, in our text, Paul's going to give three reasons why wives should, should submit to their husbands. The first one is submission is part of your Christian obedience. So fill in the word obedience. Look at verse 22. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. One day you wives will stand before the Lord and at the Bema Seat of Christ. And one of the things that he's going to judge you for to, to give you a reward is how well did you submit to your husbands? What was your submission like? That's what he has called you to do. So the motivation is I want to get all the rewards I can. I don't want to miss out on anything that Christ has for me. So today I'm going to, by faith, submit to my husband. Notice how Paul didn't say submit to your husband when he's right or submit to his husband, your husband when he's nice or submit to your, him in areas that he has more expertise than you do. No, there's no qualifications. It's Verse 24 says to submit to your husband in all things and everything. And husbands and husbands-to-be, I think there's an important application for us here, too. If our wives or future wives need to submit to us as part of their Christian obedience, we need to do everything we can to help them to do that, not be a hindrance to it, to do it. We need to look for ways to help them to be submissive. We need to try to solve or resolve our problems in a way that allows them to be submissive. And things like that. Otherwise, you're not leading them to Christ. You're actually leading them into temptation. And Jesus has a strong warning for that. In Luke 17, he says, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and that he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So the first motivation for submitting to your husband is it's part of your Christian service. Secondly, wives' submission is part of God's designed order. It's part of God's designed order. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. I already mentioned that Submission has nothing to do uh, with inferiority. It has everything to do with God's order. You see, God created Adam, and then from Adam, he created Eve. And then from Eve, he gave them children. And then he put all humanity in charge over the animal world. And then Satan came and kind of inverted the order. Satan came and he spoke to the woman, or he filled, he came in, in the presence of an animal, and then he spoke to the woman, and then the woman spoke to the man, and then the man spoke to God. So the, the, the process, the order was completely inverted. In passages that talk about headship and submission, this is why. Because God has a designed order, and when it gets inverted, things get really messed up. It has nothing to do with one being better than the other. It's following God's designed order and headship. And after the fall, remember, God issued some curses and punishment for creation's disobedience. 
right? There was a, a punishment for Satan. There was a punishment for the land, a punishment for the wives, and a punishment for the husbands. But in the punishment for the wives, he says this, that to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This idea, it says that your desire will be for your husband. There, there's some debate about what this word means. Some people say it's your sexual desire will be for your husband, but I don't think that's the point of the passage. You see, this word desire is used one other time in the book of Genesis, and it's in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, actually. In this passage, remember, Cain is all bummed out. His brother Abel had offered his sacrifice, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. We're not told why. Maybe because it wasn't done by faith. Maybe because it was a bloodless sacrifice. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. And remember Cain sitting there, and, and he's all angry, and he's bummed out. And God comes to him, and he's like, hey, why is your countenance fallen? You know, why, why are you angry? And uh, he, he says this. Actually, I got it here. Verse five or verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You see, sin's desire is to master you, but you are to master it, is what God said to Cain. So the... I believe the curse for the woman was saying that the woman will desire the place of headship, the position of their husband, but the husband would rule over them. At the fall, both uh, male chauvinism and uh, feminism uh, were birthed. And from that time on, the woman would struggle in this idea of headship. Typically, the, the chauvinism would win out in world history because men are the stronger vessel, but they're both equally problematic problems. In verse 31, it says, For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and should be joined to his wife, and the two shall have or shall become one flesh. See, I believe women, they have a, a natural desire for oneness. They have a natural desire to be one with their husband. Us guys, I don't think, have that desire as much. I think guys, we would just be kind of cool with having a wife who's kind of like a uh, kind of like a roommate who just kind of sleeps in the same house and, you know, that we could have sex with and that will do our chores and that will be there to talk to us when we like, things like that. You know, I, I think it, this idea of oneness comes a lot harder to guys than it does women. But the problem is it's not that the... Women don't want oneness. They, they want that. The problem is, is they want it without the headship. They want it without the rule of the husband. And men need to learn how to become one with their wives, where women need to value, learn to value their husband's leadership. You know, before I was saved, I hated authority. It didn't really matter what the authority was. I didn't like it. it, it whether it was the police, whether it was my parents, any type of authority, I was against it because it was a hindrance to me and my motto. My motto was, I do what I want. You know, and authorities usually kept me from doing what I want. 
Now that I'm saved and spirit-filled, though, my view on authority has radically changed. I now see authority as a blessing. I'm thankful for the authorities that God has put in my life because I, because I realize why God has put them there. He's put them there for my joy, for my benefit, for my good. Number three, a wife's submission is a type or a picture of the church's submission to Christ. Verse 24 says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. And, and Paul, he begins this metaphor describing marriage between a man and a woman as a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church. This metaphor is going to go on as this passage continues. But in, in Ephesians 1, uh, 22 and 23, he said this, uh, speaking of Christ, he said, He put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him, his, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, the, the church is Christ's body, and it's subject to its head, which is Christ. So wives should be subject to their husbands in the same way. You know, a, a submissive wife really is a picture of the gospel. It, it really is. And the call for wives to submit to their husbands and everything is a tall task. However, in my experience, whenever I have seen a husband love his wife that way, the following verses, the, the way that the following verses exhort the husband to love his wife, the wife really has no problem submitting to her husband. Let me say that again. This is a tall task, telling wives to submit to their husbands and everything. However, when husbands love their wives the way that they're supposed to, self-sacrificially and, and, and all the ways that Paul's going to describe, I've never seen a wife who was loved that way, who had a hard time actually submitting to her husband. It comes kind of natural. And for letter B, God's special calling for husbands in marriage. In verses 25 through 33, Paul's going to exhort husbands to love their wives and uh, we're called to love them in four specific ways. The, the ladies, it's interesting, they needed reasons to submit. Guys needed practical uh, instruction on how to actually love their wives. The first way that guys or husbands are called to love their wives is husbands are called to be are called to sacrificial love, fill in sacrificial. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. It says, Husbands, love your wives. That word love is the Greek word agape. It's one of the four Greek words for love. You have agape, you have eros, you have phileo, and you have storge. But I think we often get the wrong idea about the word agape. We tend to think of it as God's love. But, but that's, I don't think it's true biblically because it's said of Demas that he loved the things of the world. James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So how could God's love love the things that are in enmity with God? I, I think that's the wrong way to look at the word agape. You see, agape in Greek is the, the word for love, uh, with a volition. It's the love of, of choice. It, it, it's, it's choosing to love someone. So the husband choose to love their wives all the time. 
Our love for our wives isn't based on any conditions she meets, but simply because she is our wife. So if she gains weight or if she gets sick and we need to take care of her, or if she's simply being annoying, our job is to choose to love her. I think we would do well to define love here. Our culture's got so many false ideas of what love is and is promoting love in so many errant ways. But to love someone is to choose to want God's ultimate best for them. To love someone is to choose to want God's ultimate best for them. Do we want God's ultimate best for our wife or our future wife? I'm sure we'd all say yes. Are we willing to sacrifice for her to achieve it? Are we willing to die to our dreams and hopes so that she could live God's best life for her? That's a little bit more difficult. But Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for us or towards us that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At our very worst, the time that we were most hostile to God, the time that we hated God, God demonstrated his own love for us by sacrificially dying for us. God's love for you and me put Christ on a cross between beaten and ashamed in front of all the mockers. Are we willing to sacrifice like that? Are we willing to be beaten for our wife's good? Are we willing to be publicly shamed for our wife's good? Are we willing to be mocked for our wife's good? I have this friend, and he was a great golfer. He just loves golf. He would golf every day, and he was really, really good, like good enough to be on the PGA Tour good. And I talked to him a handful of weeks ago, and I hadn't talked to him in a few years. And I asked him, I said, hey, how's the golf game going? You know, have you golfed? And he's like, I don't golf anymore. And I'm like, well, why not? I mean, you love golf. You're so good at it. Why don't you golf? And he's like, oh, I got married. You know, I, I can't go golf on the weekends because I have a wife and kids. You know, he, he had to sacrifice the one thing that he loved for the betterment of his wife and of his family. This is the sacrificial love that God is calling husbands to. You see, my friend, his wife was way more important to him than golf. That's the attitude that God wants us to have as well. You said it's been said that when man uh, gets a wife, and uh, when a man gets married, that he dies. This is true, and, and it's not in a, a negative sense. And when God, remember, we need to remember that when God bids a man to come to Christ, he bids him to die. Is there any loss in coming to Christ? So yeah, you're going to have to give up some of your ambitions, some of your dreams. But he who finds a wife finds a good thing. It, it, it's better than whatever you had in that place. So as husbands, you need to be willing to give up whatever to provide for, protect, and to nurture their wives. Number two, husbands are called to love in a purifying way. Fill in the word purifying. Verses 26 and 27 say, So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This idea of washing, some scholars debate about. Some say it's baptism. Some say it has to do with the ritual bath that in that culture women would go through to 
purify themselves and get themselves ready for the marriage ceremony. Some say it refers back to Israel and Ezekiel 16, where the Lord finds her and washes her, and when she matures, he marries her. And I'm not sure which one of these Paul was referring to. I'm not even sure that Paul was referring to one of these three options. I don't know. It doesn't tell us what he was referring to. But what I'm sure of is God wants husbands to be about their wives' sanctification. This really should be the priority of husbands, is to see their wife grow in sanctification. Husbands should be sharing the word of God with their wives constantly. They should share the word with her more than they do anyone else. Husbands should be praying for their wives. They should be praying for their wives more than they pray for anybody else. Husbands should be encouraging their wives. They should know their fears and their struggles and and should minister to them. They should do everything they can to make their wife as much like Christ as possible. In verses 3 and 4, uh, that's what we read that God is doing to each one of us in Christ, right? In, in chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Right? That, that's the work that God's doing in us. That's part of our inheritance in Christ is that we would be holy and blameless before him. He's, he's turning us into that. And here Paul is saying that the husband should be working to promote that in their wife. They should be pursuing that same sanctification, that same thing in their wife. The husband should be the greatest influence in the wife's spirituality that she has. When we see a wrinkle in our wife, we should do everything we can to iron it out. When they notice that she has a spot, that she's been stained by the world. We need to get to work on removing it. That's the idea. Point number three, husbands are called to a caring love. Fill in the word caring. Verse 28 says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says that we need to love and care for our wives because we are members of the same body. Now, this is interesting to me. It's as if God and Paul are saying that us guys are complete blockheads. And if we're going to get this loving our thing, loving our wives the right way, if we're, if we're going to get that down the right way, we're going to need some kind of like selfish motive. Right, We're going to need to coerce these guys into actually loving their wives the way that we want to. And so we're going to tell them, hey, <laughs> that you guys are one. And by loving your wife, you're actually loving yourself. There's a selfish motive. What Paul's saying here is that when we bless our wives, we'll be blessed because we're members of each other. Conversely, when we neglect our wives, we're going to hurt ourselves because we're members of one another. Paul says that nobody ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. You know, nobody intentionally goes out and hurts themselves, at least no sane person anyways. Right? Yeah, there are people that go out and do that, but they're not normal. 
You know, this last week I've been dealing with a, a bad back. My sciatica went out and, and it's been rather uncomfortable. I've actually been a really big baby about it. You know, I've like basically laying in bed, certain directions. I actually went out and bought a cushion like a, to sit on to kind of help so it doesn't hurt as bad. You know, but I'm very, very cautious and careful with how I move and what I do because I don't want to aggravate that sciatica nerve and have that pain go down my leg. You know, just as careful as I am not to do something that's going to aggravate that, husbands should be the same way with their wives. Right? They, they should know the things that bother her, the things that irritate her, the things that get her going, and avoid those like the plague because they want what's best for their wife. When, when their wife is blessed, they're blessed. When their wife is hurting, they're hurting is the idea. Remember Jesus? Uh, remember Paul? He, he was on the road to Damascus, and he, he was going to, to go and arrest and to kill Christians. Right, and he, he's going on the road to Damascus, and the Lord appears, blinds him, knocks him off his horse, <laughs> and Paul's like, "Who are you, Lord?" He wasn't calling him Lord in like a salvific sense. He wasn't calling him Christ. He was just saying, like, "Who are you, sir?" And remember what Jesus says. He says, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." You see, the way that we were, that Paul was treating other believers. He was treating the Lord. So the way that a husband treats his wife is the way that he is treating the Lord. You know, there's this one example of love I I was reading about. I thought it was especially great. There's this world-renowned theologian named Wayne Grudem. This guy I love. He was on faculty at Trinity University for 20 years. He served with some of the greatest scholars of this day, guys like D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. They were kind of the SEAL Team 6 of professors. But his wife had this fibromyalgia, a disease that caused pain in many muscle groups, and there was no known curve. And she would have difficulty walking up the stairs and just have difficulty living normal life. Well, one time they went and visited family in Arizona. And they were in Arizona for a few days, and all of a sudden she's like, I don't have fibromyalgia. I don't feel it anymore. And they started to realize that, you know, when she's in that environment, that the fibromyalgia doesn't act up. And so he told his wife, hey, I'm going to quit my job at um, the seminary, and I'm going to go and and we're going to move to Arizona. So that way you don't have fibromyalgia. And she's like, no, 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 you know, God's using you in such great ways there. And these students, you're invested in them, da, 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 da. And they kept going. And, and he was super grieved about this. And so he just kept praying and praying and praying that the Lord would open a door for them to move to Arizona. One day he was flipping through the yellow pages and he noticed that there was a seminary in Phoenix, Arizona. It was this little known seminary. You know, it had no famous professors, nothing like that. But he called them and was like, hey, you know, I'm interested in in working for you guys. And they're like, what, you are? (laughs) Yeah, we'll give you whatever you want. You could come here. We'll take half your class load off. We'll allow you free time to write books and things like that. And he's like, you will? That sounds great. And he went and told his wife, and she was like, okay, yeah, I could do that. And so they quit there at 
Ted's uh, in Trinity Evangelical Seminary and, and moved to Arizona. This guy sacrificed his dream job. He sacrificed working with his friends. He sacrificed being in the who's who of theologians so that his wife could be more comfortable, so that his wife could not live in pain. I think this is a, a great example of what Paul is calling us all to do there as husbands. Number four, husbands are called to have an unbreakable love. Form the word unbreakable. Verse 31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and lover, his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, here he, he's actually quoting something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, it says this, uh, starting in verse 3, And the Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then didn't Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. See, here Jesus is defining marriage. One man, one woman for life. There's a, a permanence to the institution, right? You ask, hey, what if I stop liking her? What if I fall out of love? What if she becomes difficult to live with? What if she can't give me what I want? I, I would say this, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stop loving us when we did these things, right? But he continually loves us with an infinite, perfect, ongoing love. But as he said, men shall leave their father and mother and, and cling to their wife. This word cling, it's the Greek word kaleo, and it literally means to glue or to submit together, right? There, there, there's a permanence to it. God is taking two people, he's making them one in a way that they can't be separate. Now that's what happens when we go out and have sexual relations. The, the, the two souls become one. And that's why it's such a, a bad thing to go and have premarital sex because you're going around and you're becoming one with all these different people. And then by the time you get married, you have a hard time connecting with your spouse and truly being one with your spouse because you've left pieces of yourself all over with all these random people. Notice how they're to leave father and mother and cling to the wife. Right? There's this entirely new family started. Right? They leave their father and mother. They're no longer really a part of that family unit. And they're to start their own family union. The husband's relationship to his parents, to his siblings, to his friends, they all change. His new wife and his new family become his priority. 
right? And they need to establish how that family is going to do things. They're going to celebrate holidays they want to. They're going to do things the way that they want to, not necessarily the way that your parents did. See, we need to see wives for the tremendous blessing that they are. I think if we could do that, if we could have the right view of what God has given a husband and a wife, it'll be easy to, to love them and, and to continually see them the way that, that you should. There's this theologian I like. His name is Dr. Joel Beek. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook. And every few days he's got this post that he puts out and there's all kinds of pictures of these different places that he goes speaking and ministering and things like that. And he's showing highlights of it. He's showing, Hey, I was here with this pastor. We went to this house and ate. And in every post though, he shares a picture of his wife and it says, and of course, here's my queen. I've never heard him refer to his wife as anything other than his queen. So that's the view that he has of her. He's trained himself to think of him or think of her as his queen. And that's the view that we need to have. Can you imagine if we view our wife in our mind that way? There won't be room for anything else. In the book of Jude, it talks about all these different ways that people fall away from the Lord. And it gives one antidote for not falling away from the Lord. And it's keep yourself in the love of God. Right, and 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 I think that same thing kind of applies to marriage. If we could keep ourselves in love with our wife, keep ourselves seeing our wife as the tremendous blessing that God has given her to be to us, we won't have a problem when problems arise. Let her see the motivation. Let the world know the greatness of Christ and His love for the church. Verse 32 and 33, this mystery is great, but I am seeking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see that she respects her husband. Now, a mystery was something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New. The Old Testament knew nothing of the relationship between Christ and his church. If you think about it, uh, God-honoring marriage, a marriage that lives out these principles, is really the greatest witness to this world that Christ and his church exists. I have uh, these friends, uh, Steve and Jen. They were the ones that first started discipling me after I got saved. And they're great. And and they've got this great marriage. They live this out perfectly. Well, not perfectly, but, but really well. And all the time, people are coming to them and saying, hey, how do you have this kind of marriage? My marriage is a wreck. I I need help. I want a marriage like your marriage. And these are people that aren't even Christians coming to him. And over and over again, I see these families being one to Christ through them. And the great witness is, is their marriage. He's not out calling people, hey, you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, going door-to-door evangelism and handing out tracts, nothing like that. He's just living a God-honoring marriage, and and she's living a God-honoring marriage, and their friends are seeing that, and their friends are noticing that their marriages are in trouble, and they're like, we want that. How do we have that? And he tells them, and they end up getting saved. 
I think the interesting thing here between husbands and wives is both are types of Christ. Whether you're a husband or your wife, whatever God is calling you to do in this relationship, you're a type of Christ. You know, this idea that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in his relationship to the church, it really is perfectly lived out. You see, because we already talked about how wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, right? Well, that's a type a picture of Christ, right? And his submission to the Father, his submission to the church and her needs, and, and willing to lay his life down and sacrifice himself so that we could be saved. And husbands, we're called to love the way that Christ loved and giving himself for the church. So no matter what side of it you're on, you have the opportunity to look like Jesus in doing what God is calling you to do. I was telling Ray right now, you know, he was telling me that his wife has a a love language of acts of service, right? He doesn't really like that, but he likes pleasing his wife, right? And I said, well, now you have a greater motivation, right? Because now you can not only clean the house or whatever to please your wife and to gratify your wife, but you could do it because in doing it, you're going to be just like Jesus. You're going to look like Jesus. Might I add this, if we really want to grow in Christ, grow in our sanctification, this is exactly how it's going to happen, right? We need to be spirit-filled, and, and we need to learn how to prefer others in the church above ourselves, right? It, it's, it's submitting ourselves to others' needs and lifting others up is how we're going to do it. And it's going to be through loving sacrificially other people. My last application is dwell on Christ's love. Dwell on Christ's love. If you're having a hard time loving people, if you're having a hard time, you know, self-sacrificially loving people, loving people in a sanctifying way, treating people the way God wants you to treat them, the best thing to do is, is just to look at the way that Jesus loved people. Meditate on that. Start looking at Jesus. And when you see that, I guarantee you it's going to be a whole lot easier to love people. I love this quote that Spurgeon said. He says, the love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. How often have I said to you that if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand it. If I had heard that Christ had mercy on us, I could comprehend it. But when it is written that he actually loves us, That is quite another and much more extraordinary thing. Love between mortal and mortal is quite natural and comprehensible. But love between an infinite God and a poor, sinful, finite creatures, though conceivable in one sense, is utterly inconceivable in another. Who can grasp such an idea? Who can fully understand it, especially when it comes in this form? He loved me and he gave himself for me. This is the miracle of miracles. And I say, amen. So God, I thank you uh, for this word, Lord. And and I do pray. I, I think a lot of us here would desire to be married. I pray that you would start teaching us how to be these things, Lord. And that I, I do pray that you would bring that person that you have chosen for each one of us into our lives, Lord. I pray that 
uh, our relationships would honor you and glorify you. I pray for the families of this church, the husbands, the wives. I pray that you would strengthen their unions. I pray that they'd be just a great witness to this world, Lord. And I pray that you grant repentance to the family unit, Lord, that you would teach families how to be families again and husbands and wives how to be husbands and wives again, Lord. But I thank you for everybody here. I pray that you would bless them on their way home, bless them throughout their week, Lord, and bring them back to us next week uh, full of the stories of all the great things that you're doing in their life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming. I appreciate all of you.